Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. David Ludwig to the, the third of three podcasts that we've recorded with him, one on childhood obesity, one on sweetened beverage consumption, and this one on the glycemic index. Dr. Ludwig is a practicing pediatrician and scholar at the Harvard Medical School and Children's Hospital Boston. He's been one of the leading figures in the area of childhood obesity and nutrition in general, and has published some of the most influential work in the field. So Dr. Ludwig, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to have you here. The glycemic index is something that most people have heard of, even if they don't quite understand the concept. And I, I know it's been the, the base, your, your work and the work of others on this topic has been the basis of some very popular diet books. Um, so tell me about the, the, before we talk about what it is exactly, mm. talk about its spread and how it's out there in the popular diet world. Right. Well, you know, for most of the last half century, Americans have been urged to consume a low-fat diet for weight loss. And it seemed to make sense. If you don't want fat on your body, don't put fat into your body. And that was the one of the key design principles in the original USDA Food Guide Pyramid. Unfortunately, things didn't work out so well. Um, fat intake declined um, continuously and substantially through um, the last four decades as um, Fat was replaced primarily by sugar and starch in the food supply. So we got these products like the fat-free Twinkie. Um, you, know, you tell Americans something enough, and we finally follow it. So fat intake went down from about 42% of calories in 1960 to about 32% uh, today. Um, and as we know, the obesity epidemic exploded during that time. Now, it doesn't prove that decreasing fat intake caused obesity, but it l at least lets us... Um, um, at least suggests that a further focus on decreasing fat intake isn't going to turn the uh, obesity epidemic around. So then, much more recently, the pendulum swung far in the other direction with the enormous popularity of the low-carb or Atkins-type diets, which, embarrassing to many of, the, of us in the nutrition establishment who advocated low-fat diets, these low-carb diets do seem to work better in the short term. Um, and so the popular books, in, in addition to Atkins, would be South Beach Diet. So Atkins was the grandfather of it, and the South Beach Diet um, uses a, a modified Atkins approach at the beginning, and there are other related books. The problem is that um, the most recent studies suggest that the weight doesn't stay off for the long term on the low-carb diets either. Basically, how long do you want to go on eating that bacon double cheeseburger? Hold the bun. Thank you very much. And so... The glycemic index is um, what I would view as the ultimate um, middle ground, even though it has been perceived as controversial um, by some nutrition experts. And what it does is look at the quality of uh, carbohydrate in particular. It's saying let's not view all of one major nutrient, either fat or carbohydrate, as good or bad, but let's recognize that each nutrient has beneficial or detrimental effects based on their nature. And okay. in the case of fats, we know that the trans fats and the saturated fats are much less healthful than unsaturated fats, olive oil, avocado, and nuts. In the case of carbohydrate, we use, we use the and recommend the use of the glycemic index to understand carbohydrate quality. Okay, so what is the glycemic index? Okay. All carbohydrates ultimately are digestible 
into sugar, or glucose in particular. Um, and that includes starches, simple sugars, fruits, vegetables, legumes. They all ultimately turn into sugar. The one big difference is how fast that happens. You know, of course, if you, it's no surprise that if you eat um, too much simple sugar, um, your blood sugar will rise very quickly, and then it falls quickly. And parents kind of have always instinctively known that their kids get the sugar rush, and then a few hours later they're left feeling worse off than they started. But it turns out that starch, if it's refined, breaks down into sugar just as rapidly as table sugar does. Um, and in some cases, for example, white bread or, um, or, or highly pr processed breakfast cereals like uh, Rice Krispies, that transformation can occur faster than after eating table sugar. And that's because table sugar is one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose, and that fructose has to go to the liver before getting converted into glucose. So you've done research using the glycemic index and classifying foods into these categories, and you gave a few examples like white bread, but what would be examples of foods? Because some people may not understand this intuitively that might be high and low glycemic index foods. So glycemic index really just represents how quickly a food is turned into sugar in the body. The faster it happens, the more insulin is secreted, and typically the greater the blood sugar crash that occurs a few hours later. And we uh, hypothesize that uh, that drives hunger and causes overeating and may have contributed to why the obesity epidemic actually accelerated as we replaced fat with high glycemic carbohydrates. The, um, the low glycemic foods are the ones that humans have consumed from the dawn of our species up until very, very recently. Uh, certainly vegetables, fruits. Now, fruits have mainly sugar as their main ingredient, but that sugar is surrounded by fiber and maintained in an intact form of, of the fruit. So it takes the body a while to digest a whole apple. It digests an equivalent amount of applesauce much faster, and it digests apple juice even faster. So the same calories, the same nutrients, but very different metabolic impacts. The low glycemic foods, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole, truly whole grains. And I don't mean like wonder complete that is highly processed with some bran added back. Whole grains like stone ground breads where you can still see pieces of the grain kernel or even better brown rice. Okay. And have, has there been good research using this approach to test how it works for people trying to regulate their weight? Sure. There have been um, over, a, there are over a thousand studies on glycemic in the literature, and some controversy certainly exists. And I'll speak, uh, if we have time, as to why I think that controversy does exist and how that can be resolved into um, you know, a more comprehensive view of nutrition and health. But... Um, the studies, uh, the large majority of studies, show a beneficial effect of lowering glycemic index on body weight, on risk for diabetes, on ability to manage diabetes, and that shouldn't seem surprising. If your blood sugar doesn't surge as fast and crash as much, you've, you've, you've addressed the two biggest challenges of um, controlling blood sugar with diabetes, avoiding highs and avoiding hypoglycemia. Glycemic index has also been um, strongly linked to heart disease and to risk of certain kinds of cancers. Explain the controversy, if you would. Well, um, 
in any new, so I think uh, there are several reasons for controversy. Um, in any new field, uh, it may take years or even a few decades for methodologies, terminologies, and definitions to be established and agreed upon. If one person, you know, is studying wild animals and is looking at a zebra and another person is looking at a kangaroo, we might get little different findings. So more recently, really just in the last decade, there have been consensus statements about how to do these studies. Um, but what I'm most interested in is the possibility of individual differences that relate to uh, susceptibility and what our um, findings, both from uh, some animal research, from observational studies, and more recently from interventional studies suggests, is that people who are high insulin secretors are exquisitely sensitive to high carbohydrate diets and high glycemic diets in particular. Who are high insulin secretors? Um, these are the people who, if you give them carbohydrate or sugar, they're going to secrete a lot more insulin than somebody else. What do they look like? They'll tend to look like apples. They'll be storing their excess body fat around their gut, the midsection. And that is, of course, the highest risk uh, type of obesity. Whereas slow insulin secretors can still be obese, but they tend to have, they look like pears with their body weight, their excess body weight, and their hips, the buttocks. And so we found that in a randomized controlled trial, um, people who were low insulin secretors lost the same amount of weight on a low glycemic diet or a low fat diet. And um, by contrast, people who were high insulin secretors lost five times more weight on the low glycemic diet. And unlike almost all long-term studies, they kept all of that excess, that, that weight loss off at 18 months with no evidence of weight regain. So it may be that one diet doesn't fit all. That based on, we, we may be able to do a blood type, just like we're thinking of personalized medicine. We may be entering an era of personalized dieting where you do a simple blood test or an oral glucose tolerance test, characterize people according to insulin secretion and maybe some other factors, and then say, you know what? This diet is probably going to do best for you. It's going to help your biology and your behavior at the same time. And then if a person gets on that diet and starts to feel better, starts to lose weight more easily than they've experienced in the past, what happens? Their motivation improves, and you start to get synergies. Um, and you get out of that mind versus matter metabolism conflict that so many diets put us in. Maybe we could end with guiding people to resources. If somebody wanted to read a book on this or to go to a website to get information on glycemic index and how one might use that to improve health, what would you recommend? Well, um, I'll take it as a, an opportunity to plug our book, which um, does um, base its dietary intervention on the glycemic index, although it also uses um, uh, focuses on physical activity and parenting practices. And that book is called Ending the Food Fight, um, designed for families. There are a number of other popular diet books that, um, to varying degrees, employ this notion. Um, Barry Sears wrote one of the first ones, uh, The Zone. Uh, Jenny Brand Miller's The Glucose Revolution series. Uh, and the South Beach Diet also incorporates the glycemic index as its main intervention. But I would, I would hasten to add that no single dietary factor, be it fat, glycemic index, or anything else, can ever define a healthful diet. So we have to understand that this is a, 
a guidepost, that it helps point us in the right biological direction, but we also have to use nutritional common sense. So if a product is advertised as low glycemic and they got that by adding fructose instead of glucose, you know, be cautious. It's the same as advertising something as healthy, low fat, um, when they've just taken out the fat and added sugar and starch. Well, that's a good note to end. Our guest today was Dr. David Ludwig, practicing pediatrician and scholar at the Harvard Medical School and Children's Hospital Boston, and leader in the area of childhood obesity and nutrition in general. And I can also um, mention that the book that he wrote called Andy and the Food Fight is a terrific book. It's for written for parents and how they can guide their child to a healthy, um, healthy lifestyle with diet and physical activity. Um, and it is one of those rare books really based on science, um, which is sad to say, but it really is. And I think it stands out in that regard, but also is very well written. So I can recommend that book. So David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank today. you, Kelly. Uh, please feel free to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org. Um, we have a free email newsletter that people can subscribe to. And also there is a list of podcasts uh, for other visitors we've had to the Rudd Center, including um, leading scholars in areas of the law, economics, public health, um, writers like Michael Pollan, et cetera. Thank you very much.